the next thing I know, you know, we got a fleet of boats and crews and people all over the world doing cannabis business. And so it started with humble beginnings and ended in a fairly massive scale. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Kingpin and founder of Gentleman Smugglers, Barry Foy. Barry, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Good, man. It's really uh, it's going to be fun to uh, talk with you guys. Um, I've listened to some of y'all's uh, podcasts. Y'all kind of dive deep, and that's what it takes to learn about this business. You know, it's, it's a very complicated one. So, uh, yeah, this is going to be fun. Yeah, excited to dive in, especially with your story and its long heritage. Kellen, how are you doing? Doing really, really well. Excited to talk to Barry. Excited to talk about East Coast cannabis back in the day and today as well. Yeah, I'm just excited, Brian. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, I, I, I'm i glad, Kellen, we got right to it. Yes, Barry <laughs> has origins on the East Coast and is currently on the East Coast. So Barry, quickly, East Coast, West Coast, if you had to choose a coast, which one are you choosing? Well, you know, we looked at the West Coast um, from, you know, of course, we're talking about the white market. And uh, uh, we looked at California, a little crowded, a lot of competition, a very uh, uh, kind of a mixed up market, so to speak. I looked at Colorado, another busy market. And so we kind of like we East Coast right now. We do have some um, uh, uh, some a possible deal going out in New Mexico, of all places. with some folks in Roswell, which is right down uh, the alien alley. And so uh, uh, it's an interesting place there as well, but that's, that hasn't been completed yet. We hadn't put the ink to paper, but it's very close, but we love mass and um, you know, mass has been, it's not a, a new market. It was not, it's, it doesn't have the roots that California and Colorado have as far as the longevity in the market yet. So it's, it was a place that we thought about long and hard. Like I said, we looked at other States, but um, I'm, a, I'm an East coast man right now. Love it. Love it. So Barry, typically when we dive in, I ask the guests to describe how they got into the cannabis industry and if there was any hesitations, but given your unique history and experience, I'd prefer we, we do it a little differently. With one sentence, can you describe the gentleman smugglers, how big the organization was and, and kind of the goal or, or or how it started? Well, you know, it started in the early 70s. And the goal was just to kind of get get the plant to folks that were in need. You know, I kind of started out selling to a lot of uh, GIs that were, that were shipping out to Vietnam back in the early 70s. And uh, that's kind of how I got my start. And one thing led to another as far as, you know, how that evolved into tons and tons of uh, of cannabis. It started out with uh, very simple roots, but grew as kind of people's attitude changed as the 70s, you know, was a kind of a, a cultural revolution of sorts, 60s and 70s. And the people loved um, cannabis. And so it was kind of a natural fit for me. My background early on with dealing with um, people on a small level, uh, I, I and I love working with people that I've worked with over the years, and so it's been fun. It was that it was really a very simple way that I got into it, and and I just kept the ball rolling. And one, it's like climbing that ladder, you know, one rung after another. And the next thing I know, you know, we got a fleet of boats and crews and 
people all over the world doing cannabis business. And so it started with humble beginnings and ended in a fairly massive scale. Can you give some context when you say massive scale, just for our listeners? Well, the government, you know, says that we were, you know, up there around 200 tons of cannabis and maybe 50 or 60 or 70 tons of hashish from Lebanon. So we were kind of, I would say, global in the end, uh, for sure, uh, before the feds finally caught up with us. But massive amounts, um, tractor trailer loads, you know, large ship loads. And so it, it, it was it was fairly big, but it also was, to me, as I look back, a reminder of it was always we never had enough. It's not like today, like it's very competitive in the legal world. It was, we never had enough. People are always going, what, when's the next trip? When's the next load? When, when are we going to be there again? Or they wanted, we had a lot of workers. We had hundreds of people that worked for us. And so there was always that constant need for more inventory. Very, very thirsty crowd out there. And so that kind of kept us going as well. And and, and it, was a, it was exciting, you know, I mean, when you're when you got four or five federal agencies chasing, you know, and, and they're trying to catch you and you're trying to stay ahead of them. And it's that back and forth cat and mouse game. It, it starts to become like, well, this is like an adventure, man. This is more than a business. This is this is fun. And people love it. You know, and we're we're making people feel better, even though they didn't know about it as much back then about what the different strains do for you and the different, how different um, terpenes affect you and cannabinoids help ease uh, certain ailments. We knew it, but we didn't know it. You know, we didn't have the, what little research so far we have tells us what a great plant that cannabis is. So subconsciously, I think we knew it. And so it, it was always a high demand. It was never enough. It's a very different situation than that is today in the competitive cannabis world, the legal world. No regulations back then. We were the sheriff. You know, <laughs> we, we made our own rules. We were our own dispensaries. We we transported. We had nobody tell us how, when, and where to do it. We didn't have any fucking stickers that we had to put on things and mark everything and security guards to get in here and let me see your ID you know, 20 times before you can take a, make a single purchase. So it was relatively easy if you want to look at, a, you know, and compare the two um, and what it was like. Um, it was, it was a lot, it was a lot more fun. I'll say that in a sense that it was, you know, it was daring. It was, you're breaking the rules. It's different than today. And today is very regulatory, follow the rules. Um, so it's a little something of an adjustment for me. How has your uh, personal relationship uh, evolved with the plant since the 70s to to nowadays? Um, well, I mean, I guess my own personal relationship, uh, I was a user very early on, and I'm still a user today. I don't, today's uh, strains are much stronger than they were in the 70s and 80s. We've come a long way with developing and crossing strains, and it, it's it seems like every few weeks i turn around and somebody else has got a high a higher thc count you know oh no we, we've hit 40 or we've hit the high 30s and it seems to be just something that's you know when's it gonna stop probably never but the products today are much stronger they definitely last longer and so i think we've come a long way in that situation as far as doing research and and but i still i don't i'm more of a um a nighttime toker 
so to speak. That's it's it's later on in the evening when I and I it's I, I don't like to smoke too much in the daytime anymore. I like to get good sleep, and so if I sleep, if if I partake at night after maybe having some dinner, I know I'm gonna sleep well because at my age that's really important. <laughs> you know, give me some rest, dude. You know, I've burnt both ends of the candles for a long time. It's time for me to kind of you know, be able to get my good rest every night, eight or nine hours of sleep. So I use cannabis mainly for that, just for that reason. And it works great. Just kind of going back to the story, how did you develop the trust with the suppliers, especially internationally, knowing there has to be a level of here I am, this is my intention and them kind of being the middle ground, because there has to be some sort of handshake understanding between the two parties and saying like, this is my intention. And if this goes well, I'll continue to come back. Is that kind of the origin of that? And give us some of the specifics of how that originally formed. Well, that's true. I mean, you know, you have to have trust and along with that trust, you know, it's both, both, both entities want to be able to make money in the end. Of course, we want to share the cannabis people want to enjoy, but we wouldn't be doing this today in the white market. And we definitely didn't do it back in the day in the black market without having the end results of making some money. It's just the way it is in this capitalistic society that we live in. And so on the other end, the people in Colombia or Jamaica or Lebanon, they knew that if we were successful and they did their part of the deal, then they were going to be successful as well. And so it was a a money kind of uh, was a binding part of the whole transaction, as well as uh, getting to know the people you were working with and the people that that were supplying us uh, from different parts of the world. We became tight. You know, we had to be. We were transferring, you know, millions of dollars uh, from one place to another. Uh, We were handling a lot of money, uh, exchanging a lot of money quite a bit. And so there was a there was amount of trust that was built as well. So I was lucky in that aspect. I don't have really any bad experiences with the with my connections back in the day. It was really um, it was very smooth. I was very particular. And I've always been particular about who I associated with. So. It was natural that um, we vetted these people um, fairly um, closely. And so, but we, we had great relationships, especially people out of Colombia and, and Jamaica. Lebanon was a little bit of a different story, but um, so I've, I've been fortunate. Um, and, and it's actually rolled over into the, today's world with us here in Massachusetts right now that I've found that people really accept the legacy market and and our story we have a unique story our brand is you know built on adventure built on past being in the past cannabis business and having a history of being there early a lot of folks don't know how we got where we are today in the legal world we didn't get there um, without a lot of suffering people still in prison today for the plant that's something we can touch on later if you like but I was very fortunate in my connections, and I, I, that's that's kind of, a, uh, I don't know if you want to call it luck or preparation meeting opportunity, but um, there were quite a few like-minded people back in the day, as there still is in the black market, as we have out in the West Coast, as we all know. California really took over the smuggling aspect. When the feds cracked down on smuggling pot, back in the pretty much smuggling pot, pretty much as I knew it ended up in the later in the eighties. And when that happened, I think California kind of took over 
gradually that role of producing and becoming a mass producer because smuggling was kind of over. I mean, every now and then you'll hear about somebody doing something crazy, but nothing like back in the day. So um, I'm glad we're at the point we're at today because we also need to expose the government's uh, role in all this, uh, uh, you know, where we at today with people still being in jail. It's kind of difficult for me to imagine, say somebody is in jail in New York state where it's legal now and they're in jail for the plant. It it's it's it happens all over. It's 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 really kind of it's troubling. The reason I asked about trust specifically was because obviously in your past, trust was a, a paramount factor in developing those race relationships. And and as you've progressed to the legal market, that same kind of being able to read the individual that you're associating with is so critical because when an end consumer goes to reach for your brand, there is a, a trust behind the name behind that. So Kind of expanding on that, assessing risk early on. Is there certain opportunities where you you passed on certain suppliers or certain countries because you felt internally it wasn't good for us, or you thought there was too many opportunities for failure points? You know, that's a kind of a question I never had run by myself to think about because my connections were always pretty rock solid. Um, again, I was very fortunate how that went went down the pike there and I felt very, very lucky. Um, I, I think it's, it's for me, it's, 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 it's more difficult to navigate the regulatory world I live in today than it was to navigate with partners back in, in the smuggling days. It's, it's much more tricky. It's much more complicated. And so I, if I, I would love to have some of my old partners or <laughs> my suppliers back in the day be up here somewhere in mass or New York or, you know, that I could deal with them because, um, it's, it's a, it's different. And everything about the cannabis business is a, is an emerging situation. And now some of your other viewers have expressed the same. There is no Bible. There's nothing written to, to follow this path to success. It's, it's very um, complicated. So I was always lucky in my connections and, and people love, especially up in mass, the people I work with love the story. They love what we, what we bring. And so um, I've been very fortunate and blessed in that in that area. So earlier you mentioned that in the early days, it wasn't uh, an issue of supply because everyone is always looking for more. Yeah, <laughs> I think it might be a little different nowadays. So how challenging is it looking back um, in the 70s versus now in terms of managing your supply and your supply chain and all of those aspects? Right? There's more material, but is it still all like, the same high quality material. Well, I think, you know, in, in the seventies and eighties, we, there weren't really any strains. There were maybe four or five. And that was that you'd have Colombian gold or Santa Marta gold. You'd have lamb's bread from Jamaica. You'd have, you know, Lebanese hash. Um, you would maybe have some Mexican bricks and some Panama red tie sticks maybe, but just a handful of, of strains and names, so to speak, I've strained every minute of my mind. So it's much more complicated today with sorting, sampling, figuring out the, uh, the, the product that, that you're going to put on the shelf, that you're going to entrust that people entrust to me to make sure that it's right. It's definitely a little bit more, um, people are much more, um, conscious about what they're, they partake what they want, particular strains that may um, 
be their favorites. It's a much more challenging and complicated uh, business now than it was back then, for sure. Again, you didn't say, well, geez, I, I need this particular strain or I need this particular uh, type. I want this particular product. It was it, it, People were just glad to get the one strain we had. Uh, the one particular um, product we had. So it's much more complicated pricing. Remember, back in the day, the competition, there was very little. It, it, as soon as a, a load came in, if I brought in 30,000, 40,000 pounds, I had my money in about two months, you know, a, a month and a half. We, I was paid up, ready to go again. And today, I mean, you know, you hear of dispensaries that have trouble paying the distributors. People are, are, it's very, very tough. Uh, as you well know, how the prices have collapsed in some places, especially California and Colorado, and even now in Massachusetts, it's all about how that's really working. And, and, and that makes it even a tougher environment to try to stay on top of uh, how it's changing. It's rapidly changing. So we're a brand and uh, being a brand, we have to even be more careful and and more um, aware of 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 pricing and and of that type of thing so um it's complicated much more today yeah and we'll we'll definitely get into that because of the trust aspect and i think the authenticity behind the story is kind of what is one of the compelling aspects of the brand that your team's put together so from 1971 to 1986 i read your team imported over 250 tons valued at over 1 billion dollars and at age 21 you had your first million dollars in cash are if those information is correct what is it like as a 21 year old having a million dollars in cash it was um it was eye opening to say the least uh it was it it was something that um i guess it'd be like winning the lottery you know the powerball or something uh and what the hell are we going to do with all this Fortunately, as I made money, I put a lot of my money back into the business, keep things going, which was a, a, a something that you know I did to to build on my um, on the, the group I was working with and what our goals were, and 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 with the pressure that was on us to keep supply available for um, the people that we, you know, uh, kind of came up with, so to speak, and that were distributors on the East Coast. We distributed. Well, really, from Chicago, we're mostly west of the Mississippi. We were everywhere, you know, Atlanta, Chicago, New York, New Jersey, Boston, Washington D.C., um, on and on. So we had quite a quite a bit of um, customers to take care of, and 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 having that kind of money at an early age really kind of prepared me for what was to come because that was just kind of like a, a drop in the bucket compared to what it was became 10 years later um and what we were doing 10 years later and 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 that 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 money was um was good but it was also part of just it wasn't something that I sat around and dwelled on you know gosh we got this it was kind of a, just gave me more tools in the tool chest so to speak now yes we had a good time and 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 money never was an object you know we wanted to jump on a on a jet, we'd jump on our private jet. If we had a boat we wanted to be on, we had our own boats and cars and whatnot. But um, we really, I used a lot of my money to reinvest, to 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 build the business. And so it required a lot. When you had a lot of people that were working for you and you had a lot of a fleet of boats, et cetera. So 
there was quite a large amount of expenses involved. The reason I wanted to highlight that is because even today, the cannabis industry operates with cash as the primary factor. And the challenges that you faced then with having to prioritize certain relationships or certain infrastructure is still the same dilemma that most organizations face, just differently with most of the government being the the biggest hurdle in the operation. Correct. I mean, and some of that's still present today. You know, people have trouble with their, you know, the, in the business today of being in, uh, it's still kind of a basically a cash business for the most part. Um, and that's all, also an added problem to in today's world. I mean, there's been a lot of um, situations where people are, you know, robbed or, or lost cash or, you know, we didn't have that problem. Uh, again, we were fortunate. Um, you know, we, we took measures to make sure that our cash was protected, but we also, like I said, early on, we vetted who we were in business with very closely. So, because again, that's that, that's something that I was hoping that I was in a dispensary um, a couple of days ago, and they've said, "No, we can't. We can't take cash right now. You've got to go to the the ATM machine. You know the deal." So hopefully, that's going to change here with when Congress gets busy and takes this seriously, and we can get some laws passed to to help to help people out today um, uh, and in that money in that monetary um, area. Uh, borrowing money, depositing money, working with banks, just being kind of normal, you know? So we'll see where that goes. I, I don't have my fingers. Uh, I've got my fingers crossed. I don't really have my hopes up that anything's going to happen much this year, um, but we'll see. So trust is like an integral part of any operation, especially when you're working in the legacy market or, you know, the underground market. I mean, most, most organizations that are successful end up kind of um, behaving similar to like a family, if you will. And so you talk about vetting, right? And there are probably specific characteristics that you're looking for in individuals before you kind of associate with them and, and start working with them. Are those same kind of vetting characteristics, the exact same like rubric that you follow now when you're vetting specific operators to potentially do partnerships with or kind of hire new new individuals within your brand? Uh, that's a good question. You know, I think that it, it goes forward from what I learned back in the day. And, and you know, a, a solid handshake, look me in the eyes, be transparent. Uh, we're all in this together. It's, it don't make it any more difficult by being, you know, um, somebody that's, uh, you know, on the shady side, because really you're not going to last too long. I found up here in mass, if your reputation is, is, is not up to par, it spreads pretty quickly who and what you are. And I was amazed by it. And I, kind of, it's just, I would, that most everybody is, 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 is on the up and up and it like, like anything else, any other business. There's always going to be some shady characters running around, and hopefully we we're able to sort those those folks out. Um, and I think also being that it's a complicated business, that's the communication is very important because you know there's uh, a lot of moving parts going on, uh, pricing, uh, all you know you, we have uh, packaging. You have to always be keeping up with the supply chain can be very shaky. Uh, who's your supplier for your packaging? Who's your supplier for your product? Those are all really important aspects of of being successful. And 
Um, I think we've been very lucky in that aspect here in Mass. Like I said, people really respect the legacy that we bring, the the background we come from, and how we helped everybody get to where they are today in whatever small way that was, because we weren't the only people doing it, uh, smuggling in the 70s and 80s. It was quite a few other groups. So maybe not as big as we were, but certainly uh, on par with us, there were, there were other groups. So um, I think that, you know, uh, it, it's the communication is really important too. And, and, and being able to sit down and talk to someone and look them eye to eye and, and look at their product, tour their facilities and, you know, that open arm coming and look at everything we got. We don't have anything to hide. You know, this is who we are. So that's kind of what I look, look for when I'm you know, talking to folks about um, doing business. Let's do a quick rapid fire. Go ahead. True or false. You can be both a gentleman and a smuggler. True. Favorite purchased item, good or toy during your smuggling days? Uh, Porsches. (laughs) One particular? All of them. (laughs) (laughs) Best weed you've ever smoked? Blue Dream. Product or idea that you always wanted to make happen but can never could? That's a good question. Um, I'm still chasing it. Um, old school hash. Bigger challenge, smuggling hundreds of tons and avoiding five government agencies or compliance in the legal cannabis industry. That's easy compliance. <laughs> the most beautiful place you've ever visited. Oh, wow. That's, that's, a, mm, that's a tough one there. I was always, I thought that St. Bart's down in the Caribbean was always one of the most beautiful places that I'd ever been. So if you know St. Martin, St. Bart's, yeah. Dream smoking session, three people dead or alive. Jesus Christ. Well, Jimi Hendrix would be one for sure. You don't want to put Jesus as the second one? is it, or No, baby Jesus, maybe. Um, you know. That's so awesome. No. Bobby, Jimi Hendrix and Will Farrell. <laughs> That would be my favorite two or three. Is there any countries you felt like with money and your relationships, you could get around anything? The Bahamas. True or false? In Lebanon, you paid both sides, the military and the rebels, long enough to load your boat. That's true. Was that, is that easy or hard? Well, it went, went through the connections that we had there. They, we, they, had, we, they were given the money to take care of that. And when the time came that it was time to load, then they understood that both sides were going to get money that they needed to stop to get paid. And so yeah, that just shows you what, what money can do. Pretty uh, much, pretty much anything. Yes. <laughs> As operating in the legal cannabis market surprised you. Is operating in the legal market surprised me? Yeah. Um, it took me a while to adjust to the fact that it was actually, I could talk about it in the open. You know, it, it was something that, um, it, it took me a while, but, um, so the surprise was slow and a slow coming surprise. Yeah. When someone reaches for your brand, what do you want them to expect? Quality, uh, would be at the top of the list. And also options. I want to have some options like we're now producing uh, vape carts, 
Uh, we do eights, pre-rolls. We'll have a concentrate coming out sometime in the next couple of months. I really want people to have choices um, because so many people have different ways of consuming today. And that premium choices would be would be how I describe that. What uh, are there any other future states uh, that you're looking at uh, besides New Mexico that we spoke about earlier? Well, we talked about New Mexico earlier. Missouri, we've looked um, at folks in Missouri. It's a very good state to be in from a business standpoint, but it's also very difficult to get into. Uh, and that's how I, we've we've kind of found it so far. We'd love to be in New York and New Jersey when things start to kind of uh, come together. I think they're a little bit scattered right now. <laughs> Uh, color <laughs> scattered is probably the nicest way I've heard yeah. someone describe the New York market. Very, very polite. <laughs> very polite, Barry. It's very it's generous. Fabulous. It's <laughs> it's thriving. It's just defi- we, it just depends on how you define thriving. Exactly. And so I, mean, I don't own a bodega there, so I'm I can't tell you. But so and I think um, Ohio just came on. They're a huge state, twelve million people. And again, New York and New Jersey, Maryland. We've looked at. They're a very successful state. There's some very good companies in Maryland that I'm I'm extremely impressed with. They've done good numbers. Uh, they're well organized, and so we have definitely looked around. We love Florida because I'm a Southeast South Carolina guy, you know, and uh, Florida just would be a very natural fit for us. And hopefully, they'll uh, they'll be able to get on the ballot uh, here in this in 24, I believe it is. And so we're definitely looking at other states and we've always wanted South Carolina to get to that point where they're legal, but God knows when that will happen. Is one of the benefits of Florida, the ability to sail 10 days to Jamaica? Uh, that was what made Florida uh, a good jumping off point back in the day, for sure. Uh, it, it was um, and at 10 days. That was because that was such a small boat. That was when I was actually on the boats myself. That was a hell of a trip. So, uh, yeah, it's, it, 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 later on, we had boats were much faster than that 10-day trip. But uh, Florida is a, um, is a great state. They're number two medical state in the country, as y'all probably know. And so I think it'll be a huge um, wreck state, all the tourists that go there. It's a natural place to consume. It's beautiful weather um, and so forth. So I'm looking forward to Florida as well. I would like to be in every state as a brand. Um, I think I should be in every state. I think um, that it's a possibility that um, in 24, we'll, we'll be in two or three more states as well um, with gentlemen smugglers. So it's it's exciting what's happening. And again, it's very challenging and, and it, you can pull a lot of hair out trying to keep things going in the, right now the way things are. So I don't have to tell y'all, y'all hear the stories every day. Are there any aspirations for bringing in some of your older suppliers or older vendors and relationships to having one of those connected global cannabis trades? Well, you know, I would say that, you know, Colombia um, is an exporter. They export quite a bit over to Europe um, as we speak. Um, I'd like to be also in some kind of global market myself. I know several people that are in the global market and we've had some discussions Um I think that's something that could happen down the road. Um, I think that cannabis has got so many opportunities as soon as we can get all the bullshit out of the way um, and, and be able to operate as a normal business with all the things that come in this country with operating as a normal business. As you well know, we're not operating in that right now. We're, we're actually being hampered and restrained 
And so it makes it difficult. But I think globally that we'll be there one day. And I'm hoping that, that gentlemen smugglers will be there as well. I mean, we've been there before. Um, and so we'd like to be back again for sure. Who had better, who had better cannabis back in the day, Jamaica or Columbia? Um, that's another good question. Um, I don't really want to hurt anybody's feelings. <laughs> of I course mean, not. <laughs> I would, <laughs> everyone has a favorite. Exactly. <laughs> I think there are different, different, um, qualities that, um, when we were back in the day, we always had, uh, Colombian gold or Santa Marta gold. Uh, that was grown in the Sierra Nevadas there in, in Colombia. Jamaica also has a mountainous area as well, not near as big as Colombia, but there are different strains that come out of those two countries. Back then, it was only really two. And so, you know, it's it, it would be a toss-up to me. Okay. That's way for me to answer that question. <laughs> that was a good way of uh, answering it. <laughs> no hurt no no. feelings. Yeah. <laughs> no. I the might best, hear about that later. The best one was <laughs> the best one was the best price. The best one was the best price and what we had at the time. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> I, I still occasionally um somebody has some Jamaican lamb's bread that that I'll um be lucky enough to partake in. Um and you can also to, even today get um Colombian gold seeds. And some people do carry it um occasionally. And we thought about um uh, actually incorporating possibly some old school um strange like that uh, down the road with gentlemen smugglers. So uh, we'll have to just wait and see how that develops. But uh, it's something we would like to do. Looking back on your journey, is there one event or story that even you thinking back on it laughs and, and just can't believe that that actually happened? Usually they were, it would involve some type of uh, with me that, that, that would be back in the smuggling days would be, be to escape to almost be caught and like they're right there on me. And then all of a sudden I'm able to, you know, slide away. And it happens so many times. Um, and it, you know, it, it actually boiled down to somebody given the feds, but the name that I was using currently, um, as an alias that they were able to uh, run me down. But I, it was many times that I got away, um, uh, on the Canadian border. They had me, um, I asked them where the restroom was. They let me go outside. The restroom was outside and I looked out and they were going through the car I was in. They were searching it and I said, I got to leave. And so I, I exited out the bathroom door out into the uh, farmland, out into the cow pastures. And they, here they come chasing me with dogs, uh, little motorbikes. Um, it was out in the country, it was up in the Canadian New York border. And um, so that was a couple of days I spent um, eluding them. And I was finally able to make my way back into New York by foot sleeping, you know, it was like naked and afraid, you know, I was out there eating caterpillars and uh, sleeping on leaves to, <laughs> to, to, you know, elude the authorities again. So there was quite a few stories like that, that I always, you know, hark back on and, and, and resonate with me. Um, that was the true adventure when you could beat the man, you know, and he's still looking for you and he still doesn't know where you are. And everybody's getting fired because they had their hands on me and they let me go. You know? And so those are the, those are the stories that I love to talk about and, and expound on. And those are the exciting ones. Like catch me if you can, you know, here we go again. I got, I got work to do guys. Y'all, y'all can't put your hands on me. <laughs> what's Incredible. the, what's the most expensive lesson you've ever learned? 
being get, getting caught. <laughs> I mean, without a doubt. First, it cut my supply. It's cut my supply off money, cannabis, and then also here come the lawyers. They line up. They like your money. Oh, yeah. They can make a lot of promises to you, you know. So that was that was probably the biggest loss ever that one day. So, but I'm back, you know, and gentlemen smugglers, we're back. Um, we're we're here to stay. Uh, we're going to make this happen. Um, we'll we'll figure it out. It's a daily um, it's a daily thing to um, to stay on top of it and try to make, be successful. I don't have to tell y'all if you look back at cannabis stocks of the major holders of stocks and we know the big companies they haven't fared well and it's it's indicative of the of the business right now that it's in a flux and i appreciate what y'all do to kind of bring this to the forefront so we all together can figure this out you know because we're in it together we've been in it together even back in the days before y'all even around or even a thought you know the 70s and 80s we were still figuring it out and we're 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 going to figure it out till we get it right and and we're just operating as normal businesses like we should be and not being constrained and regulated to death. I think they took the regulations off of us and made us like a normal companies do operate. It would really change the business. If you could put anything on a billboard, metaphorically speaking, to get a message to billions of people, could be an image, quote, word, or something that inspired you. What's the first thing that comes to mind? Free all the cannabis prisoners right now. Give gentlemen smugglers the key. And I'd have a key on that billboard. Be one of those old looking jailhouse keys to unlock that big door. And that would be my job to unlock the door and let all all cannabis prisoners out today. That would be what I would have on the billboard. Perfectly said. All right. Prediction time. Barry, given your experience with cannabis around the world, where do you think will be a major hotspot in the next 15 years? I think Europe will be um, huge, in my opinion. If you're talking about locations and, and cannabis business, I would say Europe is is on the cusp of becoming huge, uh, as well as South America is, 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 is a large country that is also a producer, could be a very large producer, and it is already. But I think the Europe Europeans are are just now starting to crack the code, and and come online and and get in line with the way of most people in this country are thinking. And so, if I look forward in a global sense, I would be looking to Europe. Uh, we, we have we are natural partners. We're uh, we've we've been trading with the, those folks for a long time, and I think that's where from a global standpoint from, uh, that I would like to concentrate on in, in the coming years, for sure. Kellen. Asia. I think that, and it might just be because I saw some headlines this morning about Japan uh, oh. kind of firing up their medical program. Okay. But I like thought about it a little more and I was like, you know, China's got second largest economy, maybe first. You can make some arguments either way. A lot of really smart people there. A lot of big tech culture there. Um, you got the Golden Triangle as well. So like a lot of drugs and cannabis and narcotics have been coming out of Southeast Asia for a really long time and supplying the globe as well, almost like our Emerald Triangle, if you will. Um, and there's there's going to be a lot of middle-aged people that made really good money in the tech industry that have disposable income. And I think that it's a natural fit to kind of help alleviate a lot of the stress that comes with 
running startups and working in these like high stress environments. I think cannabis is a perfect fit for that. And I think that the populations in those areas are ripe for participating in a nice uh, stress reliever. What do you think, Brian? Barry, do you want to comment? I, 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 no, my only thought on that was that the, the government in China is very difficult government. Yeah, to, agreed. As far as the people go uh, and what they'll let you do and not do. I mean, uh, speaking of being oppressive, uh, but I think the rest of Asia, yeah, is wide open uh, as well. It's, um, I think it's the whole the, the whole world is really um, under a, a cannabis watch, so to speak. Yeah, I think it's going to be happening. I agree with you that that the Asia does have a lot of those things in place. Uh, Japan, you can imagine Tokyo's alone is twenty million people. And so when you speak of Japan, I think that's a, a much more po- a bigger possibility or, or sooner possibility than China would be. So, uh, yeah, I think that that the it's we're wide open. I think I'm surprised that none of you guys took some of the easy, obvious ones. But for me, I'm going to take Jamaica. I think with the history and the, and the culture there, I think that it could only grow and the experiences can be wider and people can get a more inclusive, different opportunity in jamaica than they probably get here in america and i think given its proximity to some of the other places we spoke about i think it it leverages with the climate it it could be a exploding opportunity for the industry just to to really grow there well i think you're right and it it already is kind of uh pseudo that way i mean uh you can go there and it's everywhere and and it's pretty it's pretty um uh they're fairly loose on how you're able to consume but I, I agree, and it's very close, and it has a history of cannabis as well. And it'd be, it's, I think it's, I think you're right. I, I did kind of, it, because it's a little bit smaller of an island, but it has a, a rich history of the cannabis. Uh, we love going there in the early days. So, uh, yeah, I have some great memories of Jamaica. Yeah, I think we all do. So, Barry, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to buy Gentleman Smugglers products. Where can they find you? Bass, go on our website. We have a, a locator. We're here in Massachusetts right now, soon to be in New Mexico. Um, hopefully, it's on our website, uh, gentlemansmugglers.com. Go take a look, try us out. Um, so far, we've really been uh, um, we've been happy with the responses we've gotten from our consumers. Um, I constantly hear it when I'm on the road. I do these little mini tours, and um, we're in. I think we're close to 60 dispensaries in Massachusetts. So uh, there's one near you. Awesome. We'll link it all in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. This was fun. Hey, man, I enjoyed it. It was good seeing y'all. Nice meeting you. And I hope to see you in person. Yes, sir. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 99.9% of our DNA is identical. It's a 0.1% that truly makes us different and unique. And that's what the show is about. Find out that 0.1% about your favorite guests 
find out what music they like, their first cannabis experience, and even what their room looked like growing up. But more importantly, or as important, their journey. Learn what makes them unique on Everything is Personal.